0: Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. Yes, you are. (laughs) Tim. Sometimes I wonder. My inner voices. (laughs) My fondest memory of our guest today is being strapped to him. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Sounds Ten,
1: odd. 10,000 feet above Medang in Port Moresby. Sounds even odder. So Pete Naschak is a champion. We first met him uh, when he was on exchange to the Australian SAS Regiment uh, from his home unit as a, a US Navy SEAL and got to know him there and have, have been staying in touch with him ever since throughout his military career, which was extremely distinguished, and then into his current Uh, role outside of uniform, where he's doing a lot of incredible work in fields ranging from elite performance Mm -hmm. through to resilience, operating with um, some pretty extreme athletes in the Red Bull team, all the way through to Olympians uh, in the the US Olympic team, and also some really interesting tech
2: stuff with a startup called Synaptic. Yep. Uh, So Performance Activation and Synaptic are his two companies. Uh, He's worked with a range of different athletes, as you mentioned, including Red Bull and Olympic athletes, transitioning into Tokyo 2021. Um, And also, he has the altruistic side. So he's a board member of the Lone Survivor Foundation, which is Marcus Luttrell's foundation. Mm -hmm. You'll remember he was the Lone Survivor, wrote a book entitled The Same, and that book was made into a movie. Of uh, Operation Red Wings in the eastern region of Afghanistan um, during that uh, fateful SEAL Team operation um, in Nangarhar, I think, might have been Kunar. Unbe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other fascinating thing about Peter's is his thesis on resilience, mm. which he actually defends tomorrow, and so we'll talk a little bit about what is resilience in his opinion. And we'll find out exactly what is a resilient shepherd. Looking forward to the chat with Pete. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. And joining us via Zoom all the way from Nevada, Pete Nazchak. Welcome, Pete.
3: Thank you, guys. Great to see you guys again.
2: Yeah, you too. Uh, so we met Pete, Ben, in when he was on exchange across here with the Australian SAS Regiment. had the pleasure of working with Pete for a couple of
1: years. And then I think I left and Pete stayed and you worked with him for an extra year, didn't you? Yeah. And we'll (laughs)
2: probably get to that. Um, And Pete, we've done your introduction. So we'd like to explore some of these topics of leadership and resilience. But before we go there, can you tell us what inspired you to join the US Navy?
3: Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a that's a pretty funny story. Really, I wasn't inspired beyond trying to get some college money. That was like the big deal. I was, <laughs> I uh, I put in for a scholarship into the academy and I was a finalist for it, but I really didn't do the right things, uh, extracurricular in high school. So I decided to join and regardless whether I got through to the Naval Academy or not, I was going to end up in the military and just see what happened because I had scholarships to art schools. So I was set up. I could have gone to art school, but I wasn't sure if I had the discipline or the understanding of what to do with it. You know, I was a talent, but I didn't have any, I don't know, direction. So, I think so people, I,
1: I, A lot of people will find it funny to hear a, a Navy SEAL saying that he, he wasn't sure he had the discipline to go to art school. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, be, things, before things we, turned out very different.
1: <laughs> before we leave that topic, can you just talk a bit, particularly for our Australian audience, about um, the U.S. military academies and, and the sort of selection process? Because it's pretty full on, isn't it? West Point, Annapolis, and Colorado Springs.
3: Yeah, it, it definitely is. And so especially when you're younger, you know, you're 17, 18, you're trying to work into getting accepted, there's a lot you have to do. There's a lot of leadership they're looking for, community service grades, uh, there's a huge selection process that goes down, you're putting applications in, you're getting references, people are getting references from high level government, and military. So it, it is pretty strict. And, um, and then they're weeding that down and pulling the best of the best in or what they consider the best of the best. Mm-hmm. And so and I wasn't one of those. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not
1: a perfect system. Now, selection processes are never perfect. Are some, some excellent people slip through all sorts of cracks. But um, regardless, you're also saying you, you're keen on getting that college money, and that's the GI Bill you, you're referring
3: to? Yes, yeah. So if I joined and I did um, several years, I would be able to get out and get a certain amount of money to use towards college. And, and so that was, that was the initial jump in. So let's, let's just figure it out. Let's see what's going on. Let's see if I can decide what I really want to do and and see what the military had to offer. And that's when I heard about the SEALs in the boot camp and and I had to fight my way in because of just some Navy stuff that was going on. Mm. And I ended up in the SEAL teams for uh, about 21 years.
2: How long does that take, Pete, from the time you join the U.S. Navy to the time you go across to um, undertake the U.S. Navy SEAL Selection Program, what's that time spent in U.S. Navy General General?
3: Yep. Um, in, when I went through, again, this is decades ago at this point, it was different than what it is now. So now it's a lot It's more streamlined, but it takes, it, you know, it, it depends on where the system is you know, um, and, and what they're doing at the time now. So there's a boot camp process, which is a couple months. You have a couple months of a preparation Process and then you have another few, you know, couple months depending on class updates to get to seal selection, which is basic underwater demolition seal, and then they go through that for six months, and then there's a seal qualification, which is another nine months, and then you get to your team and start working. So that's that's the general process. Now in the past it was a little bit different. When I went through, I had to go to a profession school for the Navy, get a profession, get a job, and then. Once I got finished with that, I could go to Buds. And if I failed Buds for some reason, I would go to that Navy job. Mm. But now it's more streamlined just for SEAL teams.
1: What was your Navy job, Pete? Were you swapping decks or were you driving ships or were you <laughs> an artist? <laughs> Navy <laughs> artist? Uh, Navy I, artist. I mean,
3: that, that would have been an easy one to get into. That, I was <laughs> an electronic aviation technician. So i fixing plane electronics.
1: Right. At sea, did you, do, did you do a bit of time in that job?
3: No, that was one of the reasons why I tried to get in the SEAL team. <laughs> I didn't want to end up on a carrier doing fixing planes. And I was like, this this looks like a much better path. There's parachuting, diving, you know, a lot of good, interesting work. And so that was, that's what was drawing me in was, and back then there wasn't a lot known about the SEAL team. It's not like mm-hmm. today where mm-hmm. kind of everyone knows a lot about it. it. It really was very, very thin information. Really oh no, not even sure exactly how to prepare for it, you know there wasn't all kinds of workout plans and videos and people online and coaches and I mean, it was basically like run a lot, swim a bunch, and get ready like that was kind of the instructions I had you know I was yeah. like okay let's let's see what happens
1: and I think regardless of what anyone does or doesn't know about Navy seals, I think everyone knows that buds sounds like a, a pretty miserable period of time, pretty tough uh process How, how did you find the the buds yeah
3: it in, in, it is, it's hard. I mean, it's built to push you and drive you kind of to your limits and see if you'll step past them. Like that's, that's the goal. It's selecting people. It's seeing who wants to be there. And that, that I think is the biggest piece is you want to have to make it through, buds really, um, and if you're, if the mindset's there and you listen and you pay attention and you do it, what, what you're supposed to do, everything's going to work out fine. And you'll make it, um, the, the, when I was there, I, I mean, you hate it and you love it. It was, I have just extremely fond memories of it. I have friends from Bud Still that are lifelong friends. Um, I worked with them throughout my career and it, it was just an amazing time. And it was also painful, stressful, frustrating, you know. Um, but I think that whole ball of wax, everything put together, that challenge and that stress and that Sometimes the fear and the pain, like all that added up to just an amazing moment in your life.
1: And like so many of these things, there's a massive element of self-selection. And that's been, I guess, codified in the bud sense by this phrase, ringing the bell. Can you, you tell our listeners what, what that means to a, a Navy SEAL or someone going through buds?
3: Yeah, so the, the ringing the bell is, if you want to quit, if you want to say, yep, I've had enough, I'm tired of this, then you, you basically just walk up, to this big brass bell that's in the middle of the compound, or when you're going through a hell week, you're you're it's carried along with you, so it's right there next to you, <laughs> ready access. to go. Whenever, yep. whenever you, get, <laughs> you get a little too uncomfortable, um, and then you you walk up and you have to ring that bell, you have to hit it three times really loudly, and then report that you're that you're leaving. And uh, and it's, so it's a it's a very conscious decision you have to make to actually walk up and do hit that bell bell three times very loudly. So it's, it's, and that I think is, it's not, it's easy sometimes to say I quit, Mm -hmm. but it's much harder to take those steps, stand in front of this bell and take that action three times in a row. So it really has to be a conscious and, and big desire to say I'm done. And Pete,
1: I'm really interested. How does the dynamics around that particular moment work? Like, do you have the instructors sort of saying, just ring the bell and make it all over? Is it that kind of thing? And, and conversely, are your teammates, you know, are you seeing your buddy going towards that bell and saying, dude, don't just just hold on? Like, or is it all just sort of a, a little more self-driven? Like, how, how's the, the sort of motivators and the, the dynamic around that moment?
3: Yeah, and see, I think that's that's the beauty of kind of human the human condition, right? It's it's all of those things, and it's a mix of everything happens all the time, mm-hmm. is that um, there's some individuals who sneak off and just go ring the bell in isolation, right? They just, like, disappear. Everyone's like, hey, where's so-and-so? Um, if it's during Hell Week, which is a much more dynamic, heavy, physical, lots of things happen in 20 hours a day, barely any sleep, and and sometimes it's just an action, and and it's happening in the middle of something really dynamic that's that's going on. And then people just start saying, I'm gonna quit and they leave. And yeah, you're screaming, no, stay here. Cause you want them to help be part of the team <laughs> yeah. and help, help, help you get through something, yeah. you know, like, and and you've made these connections with them. You don't want them to disappear. And so, yeah, may, and you might be screaming for them. Uh, there's times in Hell Week where they may be having you sit in the water and just, you're, you're, you're just in the cold, just hanging out there, um, doing surf conditioning and, <laughs> you know, and, the, and the instructors are asking, Someone just needs to quit, and the rest of the team can go. You know, I will pull you out of the water. Everything's gonna be fine. We just need one person to step up, be a leader, and quit, <laughs> so everyone else can get out of the water. And people will step up and quit, and they'll use that excuse. And it's yeah. it's, it's it's really interesting how many, and it's, it's I'd say it's a big majority will use external reasons why they're leaving. My family, yeah. you know, my kids, my. My girlfriend or my parents or you know like they they use something else that drags them out or Mm. is the anchor to pull them out of this situation that they're in that is just too uncomfortable
2: Pete does anyone ever ring the bell once and change their mind or when they commit do they commit
3: yeah I have not seen that Mm. um so I don't know maybe maybe it's happened but I haven't seen that happen before Mm. so um, I, I don't have a good answer on that one
1: and, and my final bit of uh, Bud's folklore questions, uh, tell us and, and our listeners about um, sugar cookies.
3: Oh, sugar cookies? Yeah, that's simple. That's just running down to the water, getting wet for whatever reason. It was, could be anything. It could be nothing. Just an instructor feeling like sending you to the water. Run all the way down, get wet, roll in the sand from head to toe. You know, it has to be from, your, from the tip of your hair all the way down to the tips of your boots and then running back into the compound or whatever else you're doing at the time just a nice little like a little sugar cookie coated Mm. (laughs) crystals of sand instead of sweet sugar
2: otherwise known as chicken schnitzel i think in (laughs) in, uh, australian surf club parlance right right yeah
1: there
3: you go yeah it's the same it's it's a multicultural uh, event (laughs) exactly but But they they
2: haven't been awake for for 20 hours and maybe before we leave hell week pete could you talk about what to expect on hell week what does a 20-hour day look like typically
3: oh yeah the so the hell week is is like the th- it's the third week of training now and um and that comes in and that's really like a it's a crucible it's kind of the beginning let's see who's really committed to be here it's it's about five and a half days long and you get four one-hour blocks of sleep throughout that five and a half days um typically it's it's 20 hours of heavy movement heavy activity it's paddling boats it's swimming it's four mile timed runs on the sand. It's it's different conditioning runs, it's workouts, it's uh, different skills like rock portage. And um, so all these different aspects of what seal um, requirements are, you know, in the field of, of just having to do your job, at least around the beach and the water, sitting in the water for long periods of time, uh, just being cold, cold exposure, uh, running around with boats on your head, you know, with your team, you just carrying them, and they're bouncing on your heads. You run to food and everything. So 20 hours of just heavy work and the other four hours are are usually kind of food breaks and breaks that are built in there so it's i think they they you know like a, a little average would be probably like 200 miles run a week in that week in that whole week um in some some way or another just from shuffling to chow to actual runs to running with boats and um just lots of lots of time sitting in cold water lots of time doing just lots of activities on obstacle courses and and lots of movement and Little little mission profiles, little Mm -hmm. things that they have you doing out there swims. So it's a, it's just a high intensity, high physical week, and it it really is taking you, physically, mentally, and to that point with sleep deprivation where where you're really on edge and you're trying to see who at their core wants wants to remain because that's when people get weak when they're just been cold for day after day after day. Um, and they're super tired, like they're you know they aren't necessarily thinking straight. Yeah. So that that deep desire is what comes out. if The deep desire is a bed and some donuts. Then you may quit. And if the deep desire is to stay, you're going to stay and continue to suffer.
0: Oh well you better get some of it into you. Have you been the India? There's shit that there will blow
1: you one of the things that we've always or we've spoken a bit about and always found fascinating is that Ah, uh, quite often it's it's not the fittest. It's not these star athletes from college, and you know the the person most likely to to succeed that actually gets through. It's it's just what I guess we'd call in Australia the the mongrel dogs, the the sort of people who who just have that drive and and some all weird different body shapes. You know, the the physical fitness is clearly a component. It's a discriminator, but it's by no means the the um, selection um, or the the most important thing. I wouldn't have thought. Is it similar uh, experience?
3: Yeah, totally. It's, okay. it's, you know, 80% mental, 20% physical. I mean, obviously the more physically prepared you are, some of the, you know, that will ease some of the mental issues that come along because your, your, your body doesn't break down as fast. You don't have as many problems physically that will start dragging you down mentally. So it, so that helps, but it, it really does come down to a mental issue because no, no matter what the system's built to really test everyone, you're, you're gonna have your moment you you could be an amazing runner and you just can't swim well so that drags you down you could be a great swimmer and runner but then for some reason there's something with the obstacle course and stuff that just really kills you you can't handle it very well. so there's always a little something that's that's pulling on you and holding you back and that you have to suffer through. Okay.
1: Certainly, the the same thing with with ours. And as you'd know, Pete, if you're not a good swimmer in the Australian SAS Regiment, you get sent to water, water operations. operations. <laughs> 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 That's right. I seem to recall actually some PT sessions where you were actively
2: disgusted at how bad we were at actually swimming. <laughs> some of us could fin okay, but but yeah, swimming were hopeless. So we've talked in general terms previously, Pete, about SAS selection, um, and maybe a contrasting question because you've been out on essay selection you've instructed on that how does it compare with buds are the principles the same or are they completely different courses
3: yeah i think in general you know i think across the world the the elite level principles for soldiering are all the same i mean everyone's looking for the same thing they want people who are durable who can think on their feet you know they can they can handle adversity and and work through it so kind of the resilience aspect um, and and they're looking for people who are committed to the program. And that was, yeah, that was absolutely the same. And, you know, some of the exercises and some of the things you're doing are different. It's a different environment and there's different reasons for it sometimes. Um, but in general, it was, yeah, it was physical. It was, it was demanding. There was people being pushed to their limits. They had to work through it and step to the other side, you know, uh, so there was it, a lot of the same core principles existed for sure.
2: So you graduate from Buds, and how was that feeling to graduate successfully into a SEAL team?
1: And, and also, sorry right. if I might,
2: what, what what is the graduation process? We, mm. we have a, a beret parade, which is a
1: real rite of passage thing in the unit, as you know, Pete. What What's the process of getting your, your trident?
3: Yeah, so they, they have a um, – when I went through, it was – we had a big graduation ceremony, and then – um so just yeah it's a big process you go through you have your ceremony there's people there dignitaries your, your your family comes and they get to watch the whole thing it's still very similar now it's it just happens after they've gone through the seal qualification training and there's a little bit different um, rite of passage that they do there and graduation They actually get their pin the trident uh, symbol that they wear on their chest uh, at the end of that graduation when we when i graduated we had to go to our SEAL team and earn that pin at the SEAL team. So you had to do work there and qualification training and all these other bits and pieces before you would actually get the pin and they would award it to you there from your from your commanding officer. So a couple different processes, but really in the, the end result is the same. You're at the basic level to go and do missions with your team by that point that you've graduated and you get your qualification pin, you get moving.
2: Can you explain the pin to us, Pete?
3: Yeah, so it's the the trident's been a symbol for the SEAL teams for a long time so um you know it's an eagle holding a trident musket and there's a it's it's basically just a big gold pin that we get to wear on our chest and and it's it's just saying that we have a qualification it's 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 like uh aviation wings or um diver you know the divers have their own symbol like each each kind of specialty has their own pin or their own patch you know in all the different services and so that's mm that's what ours is. And it's a, and everyone who goes through buds, obviously, and makes it to the SEAL teams and gets qualified, earns that pin. Officers and enlisted alike, it's the exact same training, they all get the same base level understanding, they have to go through the same crucible, there isn't a different course for either. So once we get that pin, we know that everyone should be at least at this one set standard. And we've they're just basically a, a, a group of people that can just blend together and start working.
2: One of the things I read about with respect to the Trident is that it's one of the few badges in the U.S. where the bald eagle is looking down, and I understand the reason for that is a demonstration of humility. Is that is that right?
3: Yep, yeah, there, yep, there's some discussion about that, yeah. And then there's, there's you know, again, like the pin, different individuals, different years, different gen- generations blend in some some different stories about it and like how they approach it. But yeah, that, that is definitely one of the big aspects about it is trying to maintain that humility, trying to make sure that even though we consider ourselves some of the best soldiers in the world, you know, um, operators, this, that, that in the end, we need to remember why we're doing the work. It's not about us. It's not about the SEAL teams in the end. It's really about the nation and the people we're serving. And a lot of times, Whoever we're in the field helping in the moment and dealing with, that's who matters the most.
1: That's awesome, and and I'm really keen to come back that at a later stage. We've certainly seen in our unit the the you know humility is part of the SAS ethos, but we have seen elements of rock star mentality creep in. And um, you know, in due course, I'll I'll come back to that and ask you in the SEAL context. But so you've graduated, you head to a SEAL team. What what uh, year was this, Pete? What sort of era are we talking about? This is pre nine eleven yeah yeah yep. for me it was
3: way pretty really yep. far and so it, <laughs> it, it was it's, uh, so i ended up um, i joined the navy in ni- 1987 and i was in the seal teams by 1989. great so um, it, you know i went through my my navy course and then i was in budge training and i was at the seal team active in 1989.
1: I'm trying to think of my pop culture benchmarks. I mean, obviously, SEAL is now a household term, and we might talk about the UBL raid in terms of that and the the dynamic on the teams and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But way back then, had the Charlie Sheen movie even come out? Was it it part of the American consciousness?
3: Not yet. It it, it came out a few years later, but (laughs) – and then – <laughs> how Charlie was Sheen. that received
1: in the in the teams? And for our listeners, uh, if you haven't seen the Charlie C- yeah. Sheen uh, Navy Seals movie, you must watch it. An extremely accurate portrayal, of Special <laughs> What's that wonderful yeah, line? They're yeah, calling yeah, for yeah. sniper
2: support. God, God, God here. Exactly. That was a fifty-cal eight layers of bricks.
3: <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it was really funny. I mean, that was a again. You get mixed. Some guys like it because it gives them some ego boost and you know i think the majority at the time too because again there was a there was a pretty big um responsibility to just be a quiet professional and again it's not it's not a silent professional it's not which some guys some people tend to think that's that's the actual interpretation that you're not supposed to talk about anything but the reality is that there are you know you have to represent the community especially as a leader as you get more senior you have to help recruit and you have to get some idea of what the SEAL teams are about out there and so there is there is some professional requirement to to talk about the SEAL teams but it's the quiet professional part was just do your job do what you need to do don't seek accolades it's not about glory it's about doing what we need to in the field and we don't have to tell everyone about it and and it and our goal is not to necessarily tell everyone about it so back then that was a much heavier reality for for our community um, more 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 recently i mean we see that there's a little bit more um let's say branding that's going on mm-hmm. and people using the the seal the seal teams as part of their brand to really build it and use it as as how they they move forward once they left the seal teams which which again there's there's not there's necess- there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that either because you know if you're the president or uh, or ceo of ibm you wouldn't like hide that from everyone it is something that's huge in your life. It's a big piece of who you are. You should be able to talk about it and, and use it as part of your professional resume and, and how you approach things. It's I mean, a lot of lessons learned in that, in that time if you're in the SEAL team, so it's yeah. really valuable.
2: In 1989 pete you're dancing to vanilla ice in the nightclubs <laughs> when you weren't doing that um, what's life like for a new entrant into a seal tr- seal team a newly badged seal could you talk about how that battle rhythm plays out um, you know yeah, how you were accepted a, and the routines yeah I
3: mean I, you know I can talk about mine for sure and and because I think everyone's is a little bit different it was also very different depending on where you went what team um, what Part of the team you got assigned to, uh, and so for me, my my mentality on everything was get in and just get involved with everything. It was full commitment to the seal teams. The seal teams came first, and and I volunteered for every school. I tried to do everything I could be involved with as much as possible. And you know, again, I had a ton of fun on the outside during during my off time, but I also sacrificed a lot of off time for work time to just just get embedded figure out as much as I could, as fast as possible. And, and that, that served me well, I think in my career.
2: And 21 years in uniform, what were the highlights for you reflecting back on that time?
3: Oh man. I mean, clearly so working with, with
2: Tim and I would have been <laughs>
1: being with you guys. Exactly. <laughs>
3: that was one of the biggest highlights. <laughs> no, Australia was, was a great tour. That was a, I mean, it was amazing. It was a ton of fun there with the guys. And, I got to learn a lot, and that was a good experience to be in. in essence, like an expat for a couple of years, and um, and you know I think you know I thought we did some really good work there. We had we made some advancements, we made some things happen, which was outstanding. Mm. So there was, um, but yeah, that, that's that's definitely a, a highlight. I had uh, a bunch of combat tours, which are, in my opinion, highlights. Uh, I got to work on some units and some teams that were highly specialized and really good at what they did, um, and and so there's i mean there's just a lot of different pieces and parts that that were just really special and a lot of them push you and test you and challenge you and i think that's that's what makes them highlights in the long run whether they were good moments or you could consider them bad moments i mean some of the worst moments are the ones that really have served as lifelong lessons that i use on a daily basis so so they they carry a lot of times more weight than the biggest, easiest, happiest moment in the
1: world. Mm. So, Certainly one of the highlights in my career was being strapped to the front of you and jumping out the back of mm. a clapped-out old caribou 10,000 yeah. feet above Medang in Papua New Guinea. That was,
2: in, yeah. in all seriousness, that was, that was a great highlight for me. Me too. Yeah, oh, actually, cool. I, did, I did a tandem jump with you too, Pete. Yeah, yeah. In fact, with Tim Robertson, who has been a guest on our show, flying the aircraft. Yeah,
1: right. Mm. That's right. Yeah.
2: Hilariously, well, Robbo with his... You know, headsets on, I'll, I'll never forget. He was trying to get his aircraft down before everyone landed. <laughs> so he had this, he had this uh, what was he driving? I think a caravan at the time. He had this thing in a deep dive trying to beat everyone down. Oh, yeah, crazy, crazy. Yeah, it was awesome because
3: that's that's when we would exit. And he'd drop it in a dive and you could free fall with them. If you exited right, you could be, especially with the tandem, you could watch the plane right next to you as you're dropping and just kind of <laughs> float down with it was like
2: that was really good so pete your final tour was as the command master chief at seal team five when you're in that role how would you describe the differences between generations of seals the older generation um, including you as the command master chief and those younger seals coming through did you see generational differences were seals basically still the same
3: I think that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I think what I saw again when I was the command master chief there. I mean, there's always going to be generational differences. You start. I mean, after 20 years, you you have a pretty big bag of information that's been swirling around you for a long time, right? And so sometimes you're thinking and seeing things that they might not. And and so it feels like there's big issues going on but a lot of times if you if you can put yourself back and and remember the perspective and and for some people that's a lot harder than others but you have to you know you always have to think about like what what, what was I like when I was 20 what was I doing and try to be really honest about that because I think some people don't honestly reflect on who they were yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I, was a, I was perfect in buzz. i was the best seal ever when i was playing i never made a mistake yeah well that's not true right like that's absolutely mm. false that we all did but so so the idea is like i think trying to do that and just remember that yeah i mean there are generational differences there's you know some people may have not ever even seen a dial phone before or a pay phone you know but mm. But but I mean, other than that, I don't I don't think necessarily the core of who they were and how they wanted to operate and their desire and commitment was any different.
1: I have a wonderful memory of uh, when I was CEO uh, looking at a, a group of people lining up for selection. And so they're milling around as the final people arrived. And they all just seemed like millennials. They were taking <laughs> selfies, they were on face. And I'm thinking, these dudes are about to get eaten alive. <laughs> and then, you know, within... An hour of it starting, they were just good, hard Australian soldiers. It was exactly the same. There were those cosmetic differences um, and, like you say, the generational sort of differences. But at its core, we were still seeing, in fact, if I'm honest, much smarter,
2: much fitter, better Mm. prepared um, uh, soldiers going through this course. Yeah, more globally wise. I think that's one thing we recognise in the generation. They've just got access to so much information that we never really had easy access to. Besides going to the library and getting a book or picking up a newspaper. But one thing I touched on
1: before was this, um, I guess, change in focus as that uh, decade-plus commitment in Afghanistan and very specialised role, uh, certainly for our unit in terms of uh, trending towards direct action missions. Um, It did change, the uh, I guess, the culture, the idea of what it meant to be a member of our unit. And, um, at its fringes, I think there was a bit of rock star mentality creeping in in some quarters. Uh, can you reflect on that within the seal community? Clearly, the Osama bin Laden raid was a massive high profile event for the the seals in general. Did that change the dynamics of of the the teams, or did it have an impact on on being a seal within the the u s d o d
3: Yeah, and so um, I ended up getting out in two thousand and eight that's when I retired hmm. so some of this some of this environment that's that you're talking about the rockstar environment was wasn't really heavy at that time yet um but i do think uh again you would have to talk to someone who's more recent mm-hmm. and leading in the moment right now to get a better point of view but i mean there's there's definitely individuals who are much more apt to kind of lay out there that they're a seal and and what they're doing and 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 again you you know we used to When I was a young man, at least, um, like we used to just, that wasn't the first thing we did. We didn't walk up to someone and tell them I'm a seal and have a lot of big seal tattoos on us and stuff up. You know, most guys across the board did not really advertise heavily that Mm -hmm. they were seals. Um, And, and I think now that's, that's definitely something that's flipped a bit. Mm -hmm. It's more people, are more inclined to advertise their seals, you know, put it on, and put it on Instagram, do stuff, you know, that shows it. And, and be much more open about it than we than we ever were, so there is there is definitely a change, and you see it around. I mean, a lot more people know what they are. There's a lot more individuals advertising that they were seals or are seals, and and are using that as 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 some type of advantage point. And and again, I mean, it's it's part of my resume as well, and it's it's valuable to do that at times. But I also try to be careful. And I mean, to be honest, like this type of conversation. Is not one I rare I, I typically have. I yeah. typically let the active duty do most of the talking about what's happening in the SEAL teams. We're we're reflecting on my history, which is a little bit different than what's going on now. But it, uh, yeah, it's you know I tend to focus on more uh, on other issues and more current things that I'm doing hmm. more than the SEAL teams typically.
1: transitioning out of uniform out of the teams how did you find that transition and um interested in any challenges and and sort of opportunities that you found but but what did you do after you you hung up the trident
3: yeah so i um i actually made e9 so that's the most senior enlisted rank when i was out there with you guys so um, i don't know if you remember that yeah but the uh and so so that I mean, in my opinion, being an enlisted man in the SEAL teams, especially with some of the commands I was at, that was, that was what you wanted to be. So that's why I never transitioned into an officer's role. Um, I was, I thought about it at my 10th year, like, should I do this or not? Um, and so as soon as I made Master Chief, I knew that my idea was 20 years was going to be about my time frame to get out. That's, that's, that's what you have to do to retire in the Navy. And I was thinking, that's a good transition point, especially since I had made it and I'd made E nine a little bit early. Hmm. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a good time for me to start prepping. So I thought about transitioning for a long time. I operated up until basically six months before I got out, but I was thinking about getting out for about three years prior to that and just thinking through the ideas, doing some networking and understanding. I knew I told myself that it was probably going to be a two or three year transition into something new uh, once i got out i didn't have any expectations of getting out and starting this grand career and doing all this stuff you know um again there wasn't as much attention on the seal teams at the point when i got out in 2008 it was still you know it, it wasn't as heightened as, as it is now and and so i i wanted to allow myself mentally and to understand that i'm going to have to do some things some school some some jobs and some some understanding and and development and searching a little bit to transition into a new career or or different things that i'd like to do
2: and ultimately you arrived in your one of your businesses performance activation which seeks to improve clients mindset and capabilities you've worked with a range of different corporates as well as red bull athletes how transferable were the things that you learned in the seal teams into performance activation
3: yeah hugely transferable and and again, like a big focus of what I'm doing with that company and the consulting is is all through. It's all about change. It's really about change management, leadership, coaching, um, and and helping people solve problems. Which usually the problems are about changing something, uh, moving to a new place, a, a different mindset, a different capability. And so, um, so that that's what we do in the military. That's what the SAS does, right? Like and. Um, that's, that's, that's what we always did as well is just, you're dealing with change. You're in, you're constantly working through issues and problems. So that's what I brought to that. And I try to be careful with how much military influence I bring into things, because Mm -hmm. let's say if it's the sport context, it's a different goal. It's a different aim. You can't tell them this is the way we did in the SEAL teams. And this is what works for you because very different end states, different mindsets that are required. There's things that might give good perspective um, as you guys know, there's, there's, there's stories, there's aspects that make sense to try to help drive a point home, but it's very careful trying to say, this is a cookie cutter template. Let's, let's just transfer this right over. Cause in the corporate world, for example, and, you know, cause a lot of people do come in and, and ask sometimes like, Hey, can you tell us how this teach us how the seals do it? And it's like, well, in the corporate world, you can't go through almost two years of training and selection before you get hired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's no one putting you out in cold water for about three or four hours, you know, until you're almost hypothermic and then making you swim four miles and then run with sand down your pants. And like, you know, to see if you're, you're, you're you're mentally tough and resilient, like no one can do that. So bringing in the same mindset is harder. And so you have to be careful, I think on the expectation of just, let's just transfer seal stuff in. So that's, that's at least my approach. And, and, and I, you know, I try to make things relevant without making it directly kind of seal related. And um, so that's, but yeah, there's all the lessons I learned in my life from a child, from my childhood. I had a really tough, adventurous mother that took me in the wilderness and forced me to cry and freeze my feet all the time and <laughs> do, do things I never wanted to do. But those things helped me get ready for the life in the seal teams and then the seal teams and, and my childhood helped me get ready for the life since the SEAL teams.
1: It's, it really resonates what you say about the difference in context. And um, we have similar sort of discussions with our corporate clients, and you you sort of want to answer, well, you know, if you want to do it like the military, then first thing, make zero profit. So don't worry about making money because that's not a thing that we do in the military. The second thing oh, is yeah. spend 90% of your time in training. So just train, don't actually do the the operational job. You know, it's such a different context that, you know the idea that you can just pick up a, a military methodology and slap it straight down into a corporate or an elite athlete or whatever um, is is obviously folly. But there are, as you identified, I think there's a lot of great principles, and um, in our perspective, the, the trick is contextualizing and making them make sense and making them appropriate in that different environment.
3: Yeah, and and, and I think like for, the key for me is that, again when I was getting out, I tried to have. A lot of experiences and get involved with as much as I could, just like when I started the seal teams, and um, and I think it served me well because I ended up running a nonprofit, right? So I have a good understanding of nonprofit background. I I was involved with corporate work and then even some kind of executive executive level corporate work. I I was running my own small business, the startup, and then I got involved with starting this startup, a tech startup called Synaptic, which is vision and sensory performance, and so all those things. There's there's a lot of different work that I've done since the SEAL teams that is much more relevant to all the different environments I'm dealing with. And I, and that helps me this transition the concepts, I think, mm-hmm. and make them work much better for the actual individual context that we're dealing with.
2: I think we're all fascinated with elite performance, whether it's in the corporate world, the sporting world, really regardless of your walk of life. Um, we talked about your work with Red Bull athletes and we know that you're preparing Olympians ahead of Tokyo 2021. What's the missing ingredient that they come to you seeking? Um, what, what do you provide for them, Pete? Uh,
3: it's, different, it's different things. Um, a lot of it does, I think, revolve around mindset. And again, I'm not a performance psychologist, but I think I bring a lot of the same concepts and you know i've done a lot of work in that space is at, at least you know performing under pressure is one for athlete level um, how to train performing for under pressure with coaches um, a big a big amount of the work i'm doing right now is around coaching with the olympic team so we look at uh, there's some some in-field coaching we actually designed a program that is us coaching coaches Uh, so we go in the field with them we give them some principles we give them some concepts because generally around the coaching world the coaching community across the board is that um, coaches are ex-athletes or academics or someone who's been involved in the sport and just loves it and, and is good at it but not necessarily a professional athlete and and then they just basically start coaching and they might get some schooling and then they keep coaching and then they may go and get a seminar and then they come back and keep coaching, but they never get coached. Like an athlete gets coached. Hmm. They don't get constant feedback. They don't have anyone watching them and looking at technique and going like, Hey, you might want to tweak this a little bit and you'll get a little bit more out of your jump. Right. The same thing with coaching is like, Hey, you might want to tweak this a little bit. You get a little bit more out of your athletes. And and so that's, we, we, we built a program that's been working on the summer and the winter teams on just trying to just integrate with the coaches and just provide them information and really. Again, small tweaks that'll hopefully give them bigger gains, and that's again where my military background comes in, is that I can look at things from a different perspective, because it's it's amazing how many people in general, it's it seals alike, right? S A S, everyone, we we get stuck in our bubble, and it's that idea of bounded rationality that we think we're making perfectly perfectly rational decisions with the information we have. The problem is we don't have all the information, mm. or we're not interpreting it properly. So being able to come in with a different point of view, a different lens, watch, observe and and help out and bring small tweaks in can sometimes be hugely beneficial. It can change the 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 trajectory of an entire training system um, or a coach and how their their whole philosophy on how they're approaching. things. So that's been really valuable to kind of just get in the in the middle of and, and work through.
1: Really interesting. Um, Having similar to yourself, I think, Pete. You know, we we've done the the military side of things, and in many ways, I find myself now as I look more at the academic research and the psychology behind it. Almost retrofitting those experiences, understanding why, you know, things worked in a selection course, things worked in a small group team, and you know the kind of principles that were at work. And it's been fascinating seeing. Uh, people from that military background making that leap. I, I recently listened to a podcast with Rich Davini, um, who was talking about his attributes book, and I, I found that really resonated. Looking at that application, you know, the military gives it an interesting and attractive basis. But uh, he's sort of done that that psychological application and how it can transition into different aspects, which sounds very similar to what you're talking about with your your coach, the coaching
3: yeah, definitely. And so, and then there's also with some of the athletes and teams, it's just trying to look at teaming issues. It's looking at, again, just sometimes it's one-on-one work with them to just see, is there something, is there approach that I can have that might be taken differently than a normal performance psychologist? Cause I'm coming from a world where, where we know there's pretty high stakes and, and the mentality for some of these athletes at the Olympic level. Again, like when you're talking Olympics, Olympics astronauts, military combatants have a very similar stress profile like they it's because when they fail they fail big and it's usually a national vision that's happening mm. so there's the entire nation is looking at them and so it's that same load of pressure is very similar and and the way that we process it as individuals becomes very similar between those types of large big open arenas that a lot of people are relying on you to do the right thing and do it well and so it's uh, so I think that's what's interesting when trying to bring the operator background because you you can empathize. I mean, you mm-hmm. understand, right? You 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 understand exactly what's going on a lot of times. It's different context, but the feelings and, and the human element is very similar.
1: We've been doing a lot of work and and writing on resilience and I find it a fascinating topic. And I find it really interesting, uh, almost the tension between sort of high performance and sustainability and also this idea of, um, I guess, having that generalisation versus specialisation. And we sort of feel that, you know, if you want global resilience, then you're after something that's sustainable and that's general. Um, but often we need to go sprinting in a specialized area in a high performance lens. Um, have, have you encountered that, that that sort of dichotomy between the specialization and the generalization and the impacts that it can have on people?
2: Yeah,
3: definitely. I mean, I, yeah, 100% I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, that, and that's one of the things at the elite level too when you're talking about the sport world is sometimes the the idea is to put a lot of good systems around an individual or a team and Everyone's doing their job really well. I mean, you have physical therapists, athletic trainers, you have coaches, you have you know psychologists, and everyone's doing all this stuff to help these athletes. And so the athletes become very specialized. The problem is that they're also atrophying at the same time yeah. on those global skills, which help them be more resilient and, and able to kind of work with each other better and become more in, in interactive and interdependent at the team level. And, And again, I think every sport, there's a lot of sports that talk about being an individual sport. I don't believe there's any sport. I I believe most things in the world are, are team oriented, very few things. If it's any kind of shared goal whatsoever, then it's a team two or Mm. more people, Mm. you know, if, if it's, if it's an ice skating coach and an athlete, a lot of times they're always talking about the individual athlete. It's a team, it's two people. They're both working towards the same goal. So the dynamics change because it's not just about the individual resilience anymore, it's about how do we survive this adversity, how do we come out positive on the back end, which is a different. It has different dynamics and different thought processes and um, on just decision making and how everything plays out is is, is is a different world altogether than it is just individual resilience.
1: And I, I thought it was super interesting you saying you deliberately chose to do a whole bunch of things post military career, and and that is something we're also fascinated in this idea of the the polymath, you know, the the individual that that has got a little bit of understanding of a, a whole broad range of things, and I think um, well, Tim, you put me onto David Epstein's range, but he talks about that as well, just the dangers of specialising too early because it makes you fragile. Um, you know, you can get very good at one single thing, but. You're better off having that broad base of experience
3: yeah I, yeah i agree and and even if you are getting good at one thing because because in the seal teams and you know in the sas it's like that is part of what we do right mm-hmm. like you 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 do have your areas that you really work and you specialize in but you need to keep dabbling in in other arenas um, and there have been some some athletes some olympic athletes who who do that and that they've had long really storied careers because like they don't just ski you know they snowboard and they and or they water ski and they do they surf and they do these other things that that I, that they feel blends back into their sport and and that's a big piece of what I think is creates some of these elite environments or these these elite individuals whether you're talking a team an individual or just an environment is is that idea of exposure I think it's critical I think it's it's huge because if you're not jumping into things that you're not good at or things that are forcing you into a mindset of newness and, you know, a different way of learning. Um, that was one of the big reasons I wanted to come to Australia is because it was going to be different. It was going to be so different. And it was going to force me into just dealing with a whole bunch of things that I just hadn't dealt with before, or even the same things going to have to deal with it in a different way and and, and absorb it and handle it and you know, the frustrations and the happinesses. And so I think that exposure is, is critical and, sometimes people limit exposure because i think they're they're worried about what it might do but i don't realize i don't think they realize how valuable it is and how much it can actually do for them
1: And I I think it can be exacerbated by people who are high performers. Um, I love Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, and I I reflect a lot on myself that I had a bit of a fixed mindset because I'd done all right in the military. You know, I was in this special unit and all that sort of stuff. There was status and there was uh, outputs and performance associated with that, which subconsciously was inhibiting my ability to try something new and potentially fail at it or be a beginner again. And I think that's the same for a lot of high-performance organizations. You get a bit of a fixed mindset because it's all about the output. It's all about winning. It's all about the result. Whereas what you've just described is something I 100% agree with, that it is actually about that trying new things, getting the exposure, failing, learning, and the the more growth mindset side of things.
3: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's definitely important.
2: It's the the hindsight's no guarantee of foresight. And there's um, the sigmoid curve where you get to that point where you absolutely plateau and the best tennis players change their game at that point. In fact, they jump off the curve to the next curve to try and find out how they can get a bit better. And I think that's the struggle for, particularly in team sports, the very best. You get to be the very best and you think that's all we need to do. To stay here, we just need to continue doing what we've done. You have been defending your thesis on resilience and in our correspondence over the last few days pete you introduced us to a term that we hadn't heard before resilience shepherds what are resilience shepherds
3: (laughs) so so that's just that's a term i coined during the during my research of for for the uh, actual thesis and the way i look at it is that there's there's certain individuals within a team that and my research was looking at team resilience. And again, I'm actually defending it tomorrow. So yeah. early in the morning, cause it's in, it's, it's in France. So I'll be doing it on zoom right now, but the, mm-hmm. uh, so the, um, the, the idea is that there's certain I- individuals, I think within a team that actually help shepherd resilience and help the team mm-hmm. move through certain aspects to that collective resilient outcome. And, and I think they operate, there's sometimes it's an individual and sometimes I was looking at it as a strategic core. Right? Um, hmm. So there's a there, there's a theory that ba- that is based on this idea of certain strategic roles and a few individuals that are in these roles. Can align and create a strategic core within a group and by doing so, they can then influence the team using their personal characteristics and qualities, and and so what I was seeing in my research is that it it looked like, in general, there was always an individual, typically a non-leadership role. Mm. So it was an informal or an extra role that was being created. There was just an expectation from the teammates that said, yep, they always step up, they always do this, and it has this effect which leads the team starting to think and act and behave differently which then leads to these team capacities that, that lead to resilience. And so it's this emergent property that, that is happening from the individual to the team phenomenon. And, and it's these shepherds that tend to guide it. And it's, it's a structural issue that seems to exist. And it's very consistent that it's this one, two or three individuals, depending on the size of the team and, and how they're operating, that are that are consistently when adversity is coming, hitting or after adversity, help guide the team to positive outcomes. So, so
2: is, it an, is, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. is it an inspired action? So someone physically does something or is it more softer than that?
3: And that's, that's what I was looking at. Uh, you know, that's why I started to try to find and see was like, what is happening? Like, what is it about the individuals? And then what are they doing? How is that influence working? and so um it, it is an inspired action and really it's a it's a positive emotional affect ac- action that's happening and and it was seeming like it's, it's it's working in two ways there's there's a broaden and build theory um and then there's also the contagion theory that are that are kind of working here and so broadening is just their positivity their positive one of their qualities is this this, this kind of real realistic positivity it's not this unbounded okay. kind of crazy happiness but they seem to be able to be stabilized and positive in general. And that's what people are relying on that they do that. Then that makes me feel positive. And then I feel positive. So I start working better. The interaction happens better. You know, we work together, we come to new solutions. So there's some bricolage that starts happening, Mm. which is, you know, some adaptations and just working through problems. And then that starts as a group, it might spread quickly as a contagion and Mm. the whole group feels better which then gets the whole group thinking differently or behaving differently to get to an end result. So so it is, is, in my opinion, and what I've been seeing through, again, it was a small study, so I'm not trying to say that this is groundbreaking new theory that's gonna change the world, but there's certain qualities that were consistent across contexts, different types of teams, um, different sizes of teams, and looking at teams from six people to about 30, Mm. Um, that are that are that had worked together and had dealing with diversity consistently or had been dealing with diversity in general. And um, and so they these individuals were consistent. They were I, I, I did network social network analysis to graph it first and see who are the individuals that seem to be centralized and are that have influence. And then I did interviews to find out, OK, Let's let's see if this network analysis actually plays out with the interviews and then how does it work? Like what is working from the individual all the way up to the team phenomenon? Pete, what, what
1: can you do with that knowledge? Because it certainly mm. resonates. I mean, Tim and yeah. I are nodding because we've seen exactly what you're talking about and we could probably name names that, that all three of us had, would think of. But it almost seems like if you call that out and you say you're the resilient shepherd in the team, it almost... To me, it would seem formalizing it might destroy some of the, the magic of it. Is, yes. is that what you'd believe? Or?
3: I, I, yeah, I do kind of believe that. But I think I think the idea is that there could be different layers of what you can do with it. So one, you can take the, the qualities. So so the qualities were looking at optimism, emotional control, and mastery, right? So mastery mm. being experience. But mm. again, it wasn't necessarily the best performer. It was a solid performer, someone who tended to – put the work ethic in and, and be consistent. And they were good at their job. Mm. Some of them were great at their job, but the idea was, was that it wasn't necessarily had to be because they were the best, it was just consistently good. And the last one was this idea of connectedness that they all seemed to be connected. So these are personal qualities that was like the draw, like this is why I as an individual, or this is why the team, they were saying the team tends to rely on them and look at them is because of these things. And that was consistent. There was other ones that were named as well, but yeah. these were very kind of heavy and consistent. And and the big issue, what I was finding out is that those those first three, Optimism is great, right? We all know that. We hear about it. Mastery is off, is awesome. It's it's, mm. it's important. Emotional control is critical. Mm. But the key was the connectedness, because without connectedness, without without the sense of friendliness, without necessarily having to be best friends, they yep. just were associated with everyone. They kind of knew everyone. And those other three really, the value of them gets reduced quite a bit, because because yep. you could be optimistic as an individual. You could be a resilient individual, super optimistic, handling the adversity well. But if that doesn't spread, if that doesn't help the rest of the team, it's useless Mm -hmm. in the team setting. It's great for you, but the rest of the team might suffer, fail, and you might actually be doing things that are counter to team resilience, right? You actually break down the system. So individual resilience can be dangerous to a certain extent, and that connectedness helps limit the danger of individual resilience within the team context.
1: And I, I think the caveat you put on the optimism—that realistic optimism—I I know Rich Davini spoke about that in in his book. That you know, it's great sunshine and lollipops. We all want to have that that positive aspect. But if it's just ridiculously, you know, uh, a fantasy, then that can have the negative effect, can't it? You can you can see him out of touch. So it needs to be bounded by what is a realistic outcome.
3: Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so those those personal qualities then help drive that positive emotional affect response that then in my opinion starts driving the kind of cognitive and behavioral coordination that starts happening at the at the team level and that's where that emergent kind of you know it's it's going to be different depending on the situation things happen it just kind of bubbles to the surface let's say and that leads to the resilient team outcomes which are anything on the positive side and there's there's different ways of looking at it, at that as well but you know, I, I think the interesting thing, having dove into this pretty heavily, because I looked at individual resilience, team, or organizational, and team and organizational resilience is actually a pretty young field of study right mm. now. I mean, it hasn't been around that long, and and even in individual resilience, it's 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 still, I mean, it's still a little bit messy, right? Like yeah. it's kind of like the wild west out there. Yep. there um, there's a lot of different conceptualizations, definitions, ways people look at it, and and it's actually become a pretty um, Big term that people just like to throw around now, um, but but I do think it's interesting because most of the time, even in the organizational, and the team space, most of the time, people are looking at and teaching and driving individual resilience. But again, it's that interaction and that interdependence is is critical on that shared goal, and and that what that's what gets lost because again, a resilient team is much more than just an aggregate of strong resilient individuals, and. And it can fail because of the resilient individuals at the same time, so so there has to be something different that's happening at the team level mm. than just the individual
1: so what what can a leader do if they've identified a resilient shepherd or shepherds in their organization? Um, we've just discussed maybe the best thing isn't to sort of call them out and formalize the position, but what can you do to foster the benefit that those kind of individuals can provide in your team
3: and that's what I think is is allowing them to to flourish, right? Again, maybe not formalizing it because you know um there were a couple teams that kind of had some formalization around, you know, we kind of say and expect and they the individual knows it to to do these things. Mm. like they'll say this this right stuff at the right time. Um, but most of the other ones, almost all the teams were, were were basically like, yeah, it's just something we expect and it just happens all the time. It's just something they do. and even the the shepherd themselves didn't really know. so, I think it's really just allowing them to have that space and really fostering those qualities within them, you know, helping to maintain those and especially that connectedness is creating the atmosphere and, and the, and the ability for people to connect. And, and again, this doesn't mean a lot of times we say, you know, it has to have you, have, you have to do this outside of work, which there is huge value for that going to have a beer or going to hang out at a picnic and, you know, um, and that's a good means to learn and understand who people are at a different level. So you get beyond just the workmate stage, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't necessarily have to be family level, but you, but you want to be something more, but a a lot of these shepherds were able to just connect at work. Like they, they were the ones who just tended to know everyone and everyone was okay with them. Even when there was maybe some of the individuals who felt like they were disenfranchised from the team a little bit, this, this would be the one individual that they might point out and say, I can talk to them. I can go to them. I rely on them. So out of everyone in the team like you know i'm the lone wolf here no one gets me but that's the one person who i kind of trust and can deal with and, and and i rely on when things are going wrong so so that's the type of individual that we have and i think that that we can then foster that environment and allow them to just kind of do that work as a leader and i think identifying them is is interesting i think that's an interesting step and as a leader i think what you want to do is start taking on those qualities learning how to do those things and because again, even the connectedness for like an introvert, it's, we aren't, we aren't asking you to be someone totally different. We aren't saying go out be Ms. Mr. or Mrs. extrovert and, you know, making everyone feel like all crazy and having fun all the time. It's just about getting to know people and knowing them and being there to just say, hey, you know, I know who you are, you know, who I am and we're around to work. If something's going wrong, here I am, you know, um, I, I think that's the big step.
2: the magnifying slightly on the individual resilience side pete in your work with athletes and corporates and certainly in your academic research what are the most important factors to creating a resilient individual
3: yeah it that's that's a that's a good one right that's an interesting question because there's i think there's a lot of research and a lot of different schools of thought on, that are out there and um pointing to tools and skills um so like if you're in adversity, how to deal with pressure, like you know, there's visualization and there's you know, self-talk, right? Um, there's there's different breathing techniques and you know, to kind of do the emotional control or get you in the right mind state. So, so there's definitely a ton of good tools out there, but I think in general, a lot of that research and a lot of those tools and everything that's been built has been developed from just looking at people who have done it, right, yeah. who have made it. <laughs> how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you make it? And so, so a, a lot of times I rely on just my experiences, you know, the moments that were trying for me, how did I make it through, what happened? And then how does that align with research? How does that align with what other people talk about and say? And then that's what I approach. But I think in general, again, we go back to that exposure. If you're talking about making resilient people or even teams um, is that, I think it's three pieces that you're looking at. One is the exposure. Again, mm-hmm. you have to stress the system Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, if you like, Like, again, you have to, you have to stress it just like a muscle. And when you stress it, you rip it a little bit, you know, you, you strain it and it, it heals, it grows and it gets stronger. Like that's how we get stronger, faster, better. And same thing that's, that's what you have to do do for your entire system. Not, not just the physical side. And then you have to have this idea of acceptance, I think, which is doing anything you want for the, whatever this goal is that you desire and committed to. And I think that's the key, because again, going all the way back to the BUDS discussion, that's the key to making it through BUDS, right? You have a deep-seated desire that you've committed to. And that's that's the part. Sometimes I think when people fail, when it comes to resilient moments or adversity, and they start backing off and breaking down, is because I don't think they've fully encapsulated that desire. They haven't like put it in the right place and really owned it and said, this is what I want accomplish and i'm going to do it i'm going to do the fun stuff like i love the racing i love you know all all the pictures and interviews but i don't like sitting down and watching film i don't like doing all the technique work i don't like doing all the workouts you know like so i kind of scale back onto those i don't really commit to those but that's the difference between the best is that they will accept whatever it takes they accept the, the good stuff the bad stuff the mundane the fun like like they're in it right and and i think if you look at all the historical stuff and where a lot of the research goes, in my opinion, is that that's who they're looking at. How did you do it? I just knew I had to do it. Like I made it happen because I had to make it happen. I did whatever it took. Like that's the mentality. So that acceptance is key. And then the last piece I say is just the resilience, which is again we talk about looking at adaptation and learning the uh, the, the the challenge mindset. Like those three pieces is if you're exposing yourself and you're accepting what it's going to take to get to that goal you're gonna need resilience in the long run. You're gonna have to be able to bounce back or bounce forward in some way along the way, because you're gonna have challenges, you're gonna have roadblocks, issues are gonna happen. So how you do that, how that matters to you is gonna matter because then you gotta cycle right back into some new exposure, accept what it's gonna involve and be resilient when things go wrong again.
2: In your time in Team 5, you came across Marcus Luttrell, who uh, has been popularised in his book Lone Survivor, and later that was made into a movie star- starring Mark Wahlberg. And you've been on the board of his foundation. Has that taught lessons of resilience? He was the only guy to survive out of his team on Operation Red Wings in eastern Afghanistan. What can be learnt from um, Marcus and people like him? yeah, I think
3: again, I think that's where we get into the the acceptance realm. It was that never quit, right? Like, I'm just gonna keep chipping away keep moving. i I'm, I'm gonna just do what it takes. And so I think from that level of that incident, it was something he was thrust into. um and there's been a lot of other soldiers and sailors that 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 we know that have had the same same types of moments in their life that have been things they've been thrust into and had to deal with. But I think it's that core belief that. I can make it happen, you know. I can. I'm going to accept what it takes. I'm going to keep working and pushing forward, and that that piece, I think, is is the idea of mental toughness in the long run, right? I I, I think if you go back to a lot of the old ancient texts, like that idea of acceptance is key to just making it through adversity, surviving, longevity. Like it's like like that's that's the piece that I think is just it really comes down to. It. It's like you know, it has to matter to you, and you have to just. Just make it happen like the old, the old Nike. Just do it, right? That is it. That's mm. part of it. Just, mm. just go do it. Just make it happen. Just go.
2: Uh, Pete, what are your daily habits and practices? So, you know, we've talked a lot about the tenets of resilience and the importance of the physical combined with the mental, and you talked about social support as well. What habits and practices would you preach to be, you know, a 101 just good human being?
3: Yeah. That's, that's a, that's another good question. Cause I think there's some people who are constantly working on optimization. Right. And I think that's a huge thing right now. We got to optimize. Everything's gotta be perfect, but it's almost like if everything's always gotta be perfect and you're always working to work everything, this is just me. This is my philosophy. Hmm. If I was so wrapped up on trying to make everything just right all the time, that's almost like a whole level of stress, just of trying to avoid all the wrong things all the time. Right. So I have like a general approach to just, trying to be a high level performer and it's a high level performer for my world my context my needs right now right that might be different than it was when i was in the seal teams it might be different than someone else and who's a ceo of a large company but but the idea is that you know i just look at general health issues i look at trying to eat fairly well i don't eat perfectly all the time i try to just do across the board try to think about how i'm eating how I'm hydrating in general, but I don't lose my mind over it. I know I can work dehydrated if I need to. I know I can go without sleep if I need to. I do it all the time when I'm training athletes uh, like like Red Bull doing these big excursions and, and corporate groups and taking them out. Like I'll, I might not sleep for 48 hours sometimes while they get some sleep, Like but that doesn't bother me. I can make it happen, right? Mm. Like, I, like I, I can make it work. I don't do that on a daily basis though. So. Mm. The general norm is I try to get 78 hours of sleep as as often as possible i try to work out i try to be healthy and eat healthy um and i try to test myself learn new things meet new people um it's it's generally you know i'd say like my 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 general mission in life i would say is experience as much as i can try as hard as i can and share it with as many people as possible like that to me that's that's high performance like at, that it doesn't need to be perfect every time. You, you're you're just working and just trying to make it happen as good as possible, as, as much as as much as you can.
2: What's your perspective on meditation and mindfulness? It's a topic we haven't spoken about yet. Um, is it something that you <laughs> practice? Do elite athletes do it? What about high performing corporate types?
0: Yeah,
3: I I definitely um have practiced it. I've practiced it and. Um, I mean, to be honest, like I tried things like self-hypnosis all the way back in buds when I was trying to work through a massive injury and just seeing like, can I self-heal myself a little bit? Right. I was leading mm-hmm. up on it and looking at it. And, and um, so it's always been something I've kind of dabbled in, but I also tend to fall back on doing things that I can do actively and not mm-hmm. and fit into my lifestyle sometimes because it's hard to always dedicate time consistently and do it right supposedly right, right? Um, per a lot of the prescriptions out there. And I think the meditation and mindfulness, there's, there's different aspects to it, right? I think there's an operational side to it and there's a recovery side. So it depends on what you're looking for. If I start feeling stressed, like in, in certain things like going on a run and practicing basically mindfulness on the run, yeah, I'm paying attention to my footfall, my breathing. I'm listening to this to the world around me. I'm paying attention to what my eyes are saying, looking at peripheral vision and letting that expand out. And, you know, the same techniques that you'd be using yep. sitting in a room, I'm using out in the world and while I'm doing something else at the same time. And then there's times where I've done, yeah, I, you know, I do um, a breathing and kind of mindfulness technique to go to sleep or meditation. Um, That's pretty much a nightly issue. On, and then, but it's not something that I tend to really look at is like this big overblown practice that has to be done certain ways all the time. It's you know, I try to find time to just think and reflect and sometimes just empty the head and be, and and create some sensory deprivation.
1: I love that because I—that's very similar to my sort of journey. I, I'd always had this stigma about meditation that you had to wear a, a flowing orange robe and sit in an incense-filled room. And I've—I've I've loved people like Dan Harris, who we've spoken mm-hmm. about before, who wrote Ten Percent Happier—a very sort of cynical but but very instructive approach to meditation. A guy called Jeff Warren, who does a lot of guided meditation on Calm, and saying similar to what you did—it's—it's not—it's not a big formal different thing. It is about focusing on one thing, paying attention, you know, being in the moment rather than a, a sort of something that you can you have to dedicate a, a separate time to. Um, yeah. It, yeah there's on. times when I've been
3: like after workouts, I might just sit and just relax and just, and mm. again, I run through the breathing techniques and I just, I run through like a normal meditative cycle, but it doesn't happen all the time, yeah. um, you know, but it's, so there's, yeah. I I really think it's, some of these things, when we get into them, it's like they can become detriments, right? Like to, they can almost like start anchoring you in ways. And, but for some people, they, they need these, they need these, and they want these because it's solving something for them. And so I think it's a decision on the individual of, you know, to try stuff again, it's exposure. It's just get out there, try these, give it a good try, commit to it, you know, have some acceptance and just put in, and, and I've done this in different ways. I've tried different ways of meditating, different stuff. and. And if it works, if I feel something and it it seems like it's good, then I kind of incorporate it a little bit more or I use it all the time. Um, Same thing with some physical stuff or eating, you know, it's, you know, if it's not doing anything for you, then maybe you don't need it. Like it's not necessarily key for you just because someone else has changed their life doesn't mean it's going to change yours. And so I think I think we have to be realistic about that sometimes and not get caught up in just what everyone says that that is amazing for them. It doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be for you.
1: You mentioned before visualization and self-talk as as really powerful tools. Um, can you share any sort of hacks or techniques that you use personally, or you found have, have worked well for you?
3: Yeah, the, the the visualization I think is a huge one. Um, you I mean, in my opinion, you're programming. That's a that's a pre adversity issue. Again, if we're going back to resilience, that's a pre adversity issue. You're you're programming yourself on how am I going to handle this type of environment, right? Or these types of things that might happen. And you may know very, very concretely what that might be like in the soldiering world, right? Like, how am I going to handle being shot in the leg? Mm. <laughs> it's like, mm. and visualizing that picturing it, picturing it as viscerally as you can, like almost trying to think about what the smells would be and what the pain is, and the feeling and like, trying to work through that. And then how do I want to respond to it? How do I work through? It? How do I how, how do I manage it? deal with it? And Um, I've talked to some athletes about this as well Is that because a lot of times athletes are told or you know often athletes are told never think about the negative never think about losing but I don't I think if you never think about losing then you're never ready for dealing with when you lose Mm. Um, you know I remember a good friend of mine in the teams who ended up injured and he was sitting in the hospital and I asked him you know how he's doing and and he just started telling me like you know i I didn't think it was gonna be like that. I asked him, what, did, what do you mean you didn't think it was gonna be like that? He said, I didn't think we're gonna lose,
1: hmm.
3: you know? And so he was gonna be losing his leg and he, he just considered the fact that they, they got shot off the mountain and he had never considered that that was an option. Hmm. He had never thought through like, what if this happens? Like, how am I gonna deal with it? Like, what's, what's the rest of my life look like? And, you know, how, how am I gonna make it through these things? So, so again, for, for that, you can just see now he's in an adversity. And he's being held back by this by this realization that he has to go through a whole process of just coming to terms with like, wow, this is actually possible, you know, which slows everything down on the other side of having some type of positive outcome.
1: We love stoicism and they've got a practice called premeditatio malorum, which means sort of focusing on the worst thing that could happen in your life. And it sounds really depressing. You know, what would happen if I lost my job or if my wife died or if my kids got sick or... You know fundamentally that sounds like an awful thing to to focus on, but it's almost exactly what you're saying before. I think not only does it help uh, that that pre-visualisation and and um, develop the fact that this could happen and, and help you with some tools that you might be able to cope with, but it also makes you really thankful for what you actually have um, when you're not shot in the leg or when your life, wife's still alive or or the, the the beauty that you you have in your your current moments.
3: Yeah, and that's where they, like there's a lot of research around the gratitude, right? Like so, yeah. doing an exercise like that can help you then get that instant boost. Uh, there's a you get that dopamine boost, and it can actually change your thought process. It reframes everything for you by just by just going down that gratitude line. And so, yeah, some sometimes thinking through these things I think is is important. And I think the visualization again, there's like that that preparatory style. And then there's a style that's that's in the moment, you know. Um, and again, if we go to the very base level of soldiering it that might be just visualizing how do i get from this car to that car while people are shooting at me mm. and you picture it like it takes a couple seconds to just flash in your head and then you activate it and you move it's just giving you the optimum performance path that you want to try to take and then hopefully you don't have to adjust too much along the way but you're ready to if you need to and so that's that i think again it's 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 like the, med- the meditation is i think there's different layers and there's different ways it's activated for different reasons and and we have to be careful trying to generalize. And like, like, you know, a lot of people talk about being calm all the time. Like it's always about calming down. It's like, well, it's more about emotional control. Sometimes in some environments it's about controlled aggression. Mm. It's, it's not, you know, you know, put Gandhi in a firefight. Let's see how he acts. You know, like it's, mm. it's, it may be very different than when, <laughs> than the way we see him inside a seminar. So so, so the whole idea is, I think it, it it depends. Like in some places, you want a little heightened awareness. You want to be a little bit on edge. You you know that that's good for you. Your senses are firing up. Your vision's working at, at at heightened capacity. You're 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 picking up all the details, and you're ready to react. And you just don't want that to go too far. And so you want it at the right level. And that's it's that emotional control of the right place at the right time is what's key.
2: My last questions on recommended readings. You know, what are you reading at the moment? What's on your nightstand, on your bedside table that you'd recommend everyone should read?
3: <laughs> I got about a thousand <laughs> pages of research. I could. Yeah, tell that's about. right. But, uh, the, uh, um, now, there's 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 been some interesting books. Um, there's one Empire of the Summer Moon, which is really good. It's uh, I actually read that with with a group of team guys, and uh, um, that one's really interesting. It's about the whole Comanche existence and, and like how they started and everything that happened until their downfall. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting lessons and it's and it's written in a way that it, it's a historical book. It's um and it's laying out the realities of the culture and and the realities of the world. Again, different contexts, different end states, different value systems that are going on. They're not wrong, they're not right. They they were they were what were for that environment at the time and what was happening and so so i think that type of book there's tons of lessons if you really want to pick inside of it pick and find the details there's leadership lessons there's really interesting historical lessons there's cultural lessons there's there's lessons about how people interact and how sometimes our thought processes can cause massive damage to systems and the environment um, so it's it's really a book that really dives into complexity and I think systems theory a little bit without putting it in your face. It's if you want to come from that lens, you can really see a lot of interesting lessons come out of that. And then um, and then there's 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 always a book that I kind of revisit. I like is uh is called The Bear. And it's a short novel that's um that's that's a you know, it's it's a Faulkner novel that's it was it was part of um, some other writings that he did in a magazine and then he built it into a shortened novel. And that's just a really good coming-of-age story. That's again, it's it's there's some underlying discussion in there about kind of nature and man and, and how they interact together and work. And and it's trying to really the the adversity and the struggle of this massive challenge that's in front of this this, this individual and this family and, and all the mystique around it is really interesting.
1: Pete, you've mentioned you're about to strap on the body armor at Zero Dark 100 and defend your thesis from the French tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, what's next after that for, for Pete Naschak? Uh,
3: uh, I got a ton of work that's going to be coming up. Um, we got the Olympics coming up, right? And so there's a, there's a lot of work I'm, I'm going to be doing there and helping out where I can. And, um, and then Synaptic, the Vision and Century Performance Company, uh, it's growing. There's a lot more people who are understanding the value of vision and sensory performance, like how that, how that matters, not only in, in sport or elite performance, but in regular life and, um, and, and the medical side as well. And so there's, there's a lot of work that we have to do there and just keep expanding, you know, the, the, the good, the good movement we got going on.
1: That's awesome. And we'll certainly link to Synaptic uh, in our show notes. And we definitely, definitely look forward to to tracking you as you push forward with
2: that and your other endeavors. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast.
3: No, this is great. I really appreciate it. It's been real fun. It's great to see you guys. I mean, we got to catch up in person for sure.
1: Definitely. If we can ever travel again, I, I look forward to the, to the next time we, we crack a beer together. Thank you guys. Appreciate
2: it. Cheers. Thanks, Pete.
0: Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of Distance Run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.